to the Young Baptist Podcast, a podcast committed to the centrality of the gospel, to encouraging believers to be captivated all over again by the beauty and glory of Christ, and to taking breaks whenever we very well please. That's right, because it's our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, welcome back. My name is Clay Maynard. I'm joined by my co-host, Josh Johnson. What's up, Josh? Not a whole lot, man, sitting on the floor in our bedroom recording this episode. <laughs> our being my wife and I. It's our so bedroom. This is, yeah, your your bedroom at your house, yeah. yeah so this is clarifying. like, this is legit like having you're if, if you're listening to the podcast right now you're basically this is what it's like to have a slumber party with josh essentially i was going for that vibe <laughs> <laughs> oh man well we've got uh some cool stuff going down this if you didn't hear from last episode our merch store is closing um it's just uh, we're centralizing our fundraising um efforts toward our small group so if you've not a part of that please do we have all kinds of benefits and cool stuff for you there the merch store is good through at least september 1 so before september 1st you want to get your orders in if you wanted to get a mug or a t-shirt or or something like that uh there's two discount codes josh right there's last yep. chance if you yep. use the if you use the discount code last chance gives you a 15 off yep. yep if you lose if you use the code free ship free s-h-i-p just to be 100% clear, <laughs> that'll give you free shipping. So those are two discount codes you can use. Get your Young Baptist Podcast merch before the store closes. Um, and those cannot be combined, unfortunately. Yeah, one or the other, or unfortunately. The other. You know, yeah. so no double Josh. dipping. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Josh, did you see this tweet by Ryan Hayden? Um, I did. I, I, I even it was responded yesterday. to it. Yep. Oh, yeah, you did. You responded to the tweet. And I'll read it for you guys because it was it was a very thought-provoking tweet. But he has since tweeted again about it. I'll read you both. Yesterday oh, he, he has? Yes. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. He tweets yesterday, name an IFB leader who has published anything of substance. Dot, dot, dot. In 60 years, the sum total of our intellectual input is basically bus manuals and warmed over mediocre sermon series. He goes on to say later, uh, Doug Wilson, a Presbyterian and his progeny has published more important stuff from his little hamlet in North, Northern Idaho than every Bible college and publisher in our movement. He goes on and has a few more thoughts about mm -hmm. that, but that kind of gets at what he's saying. Um, I will leave the Doug Wilson, my Doug Wilson commentary for another day. But that aside, what he's trying to point out, I feel is um, we, we don't really see the kind of mainstream contribution to the broader Christian church from the independent fundamental Baptist community that you see from other places. Um, and he's, he's sort of just sort of commenting on it. He since today, just a little bit ago, tweeted, so I wish I could edit my tweet from yesterday to simply say this. Where are the independent Baptists who are prolific like Doug Wilson and his family? If you look at my tweets as a thread, that's what I was, that was what I was getting at. I wasn't trying to dump on every IFB writer. Uh, that was an interesting, interesting thought there, Josh. So we do have independent Baptist publishers. We do have independent Baptist authors. But he seems to be pointing out that you don't see the kind of broad, broader mainstream Christian 
contributions from the independent fundamental Baptist community. Now, I have a very specific thought on this, but I'd love to hear yours. What do you think about this? I mean, it's no matter what one's take on that is, that's just a fact. You know, we just, the independent Baptist world does not write anything that anybody knows about or cares about. Um, <laughs> oh man, yeah, that, that was kind of rough, I guess. <laughs> well, Josh, we're not saying, and and Ryan's not saying that there aren't independent Baptist pastors who are writing helpful books that are, that are ministering to people. We're not saying he's not no. saying that. And we're not saying that Mm-mm. we're just saying there hasn't been the kind of, when you look at biblical scholarship and the kind of, uh, deeper theological books out there. Uh, David Velasquez actually joked. He said, what he's asking is, where is our IFB gentle and lowly? <laughs> well, so I kind of thought about this a little more. I think someone said you, the big publishing houses in Christianity, you know, nobody there knows any IFB guys. And that may very well be true. But could that be associated with the fact that uh, everybody knows what the IFB was. And if that has changed, they don't know it. You know, there's yeah. largely a caricature. So why would why would a publishing company put their neck out for somebody they don't know anything about that's associated with a movement that is, frankly, pretty toxic? You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I think that, shouldn't, I think, that part shouldn't alarm us. Yeah, so there's, I have a couple, there's two specific thoughts I have on this. One, uh, in our, the first thought I have is that in the IFB heyday, let's call it, and I mean heyday not like it's healthiest. I, I just mean it's biggest. Like when we were at our most, uh, our, 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 we were running the biggest numbers. We had some of the biggest churches in America. Yeah, that kind of thing. We were actually known for for hyper separatism from other Christian groups, mm-hmm. and um, over things like Bible translations and things like that. But we were we were known for hyper separatism, and even there was a there was a large uh, anti intellectualism movement. So like even if you were uh to, to for for lack of a better term, if you were like me or you, if, we, if you were a nerd and you wanted to study the Bible and you wanted to go to seminary and you were interested in, in thinking and talking about deep theological subjects, you were almost shunned a little bit. You'll hear them talk refer to seminary as the cemetery. Right. Uh, where and, and even hear, hear them. I mean, I'm, this is a common this was a mainstream common IFB idea and that it was to belittle biblical scholarship mm-hmm. to downplay um, legitimate academic pursuit of understanding the Bible, whether it's by biblical history or canonicity or the Bible, biblical languages. So combine those two things, combine anti-intellectualism like belittling scholarship with hyper separatism so the few guys we don't we do have writing really good deep books get no mainstream publicity because we're we're segmented off from those people Uh, and if you do cross that line and and associate with the broader evangelical culture you're a compromiser you're not a fundamentalist yeah and a lot of people mentioned that in that thread yeah so so we became a subculture and so we didn't really get to so i think when you did have sort of really good books being written it did, it wasn't going to break through that wall. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think John R. Rice was a pretty intellectual Christian thinker. Not that I I have my issues with John R. Rice too, but um, he wrote some pretty good books. I know I've read some stuff from John, John R. Rice that I thought was uh, he has a book on the Holy Spirit that was that was actually a really good book. But like we said, it, it, it he wasn't going to break through that that uh, that barrier that we had. The other 
very, very interesting thought I have about this is if you go far back enough in independent Baptist history, you actually go back to when we were part, we were Southern Baptists mm-hmm. <laughs> or we weren't, if we weren't Southern Baptists, we were general association, regular Baptists, or one of those groups. Um, there's American Baptists. There's a couple of different groups. And there, if you look at Baptist history beyond the IFB movement f- that started, let's say 50s, 60s, whatever, you go back further than you mean that. like 50s, 60s AD, right? yeah (laughs) um if you go back far enough we were part of the southern baptist convention and if you just take baptist history as a whole cloth uh, the truth is all real baptist churches are independent let's let's just say that yes even southern baptist convention churches are independent churches i don't know what happened where uh, you mentioned to me josh that you feel like at some point independent baptist churches because we called ourselves independent started making it out like these SBC churches are like part of a denominational hierarchy, mm-hmm. but they're not. It, we, we've done them a disservice and spread a false idea about them, I think, if we're saying that. And I think that that has been said. We treat them like they're just some offshoot of Presbyterianism. They're not. The, the, the SBC is cooperation for very specific purposes. They don't own those churches. They don't have actual hierarchical authority over those churches. Any church that's an SBC church can leave anytime they want. Yep. Um, and so there's a lot of diversity between Southern Baptist churches because they just cooperate for the specific purposes that the SBC entity is there for. Authority is not one of them. It's just not. So um, so if you go back far enough and you're willing to accept all Baptist history, not just the last 80 to 100 years. The landmarkist stuff. Right. If, if you're willing to go back far enough, you can actually see uh, actually Baptist history is full of uh, really accomplished and incredible authors, guys like Charles Spurgeon, guys like John Gill. Like these are these are theological heavyweights, not not nobody. And they're very mainstream. Oh, yeah. So John Gill, he's one of my favorite commentaries to look at when I study. John Gill's awesome. He's a baller. When we were going through our D- Baptist distinctive series, I think we quoted him a number of times because. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially historically speaking, he's somebody that Baptists as a whole look back to as one of our one of our most well-known theologians. Yep. So pretty cool. And an interesting thought by Ryan. And I appreciate his willingness to he took a few arrows on this one. I think I, I, I you know, how you know how Twitter is it's really hard to articulate exactly what you're trying to say in 280 characters, but um it's tough to kind of stick your neck out there once in a while and and uh and start a conversation, you know, be willing to, to engage people. 102 replies. That is not, (laughs) that is no small thing on Twitter. No, no, but it was, it was an interesting thought. And if nothing else, I I think, I hope that the tweet served to challenge guys who have writing ability and who are deep in theological thought and study to say, Hey, put your pen to paper and, and be willing to associate with people who will promote you, who, who believe in the truth that you're writing. Um, because that's one of the things I, I look at the broader evangelical communities. A lot of other groups are a lot better at being willing to promote guys they don't agree on everything with. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, if you if you contributed something very helpful, uh, we want to promote that, even yeah. if you, we don't agree with you on all these other things. So I hope, well, that, and I this, hope the, the tweet serves to encourage independent Baptist churches um, to foster acad- uh, biblical academics and scholarship. This might just be my own, you know, naivety, but in this society in our day if you have a manuscript and it aligns with what a publishing house is interested in publishing you can submit it like yeah. you know that really anymore there's really not much of a reason that if you are writing 
sound theological stuff that you couldn't get your stuff published. No, there's, there's great stuff coming out of Crossway, coming out of Moody. Like there's great publishers out there putting out really good stuff. And it's, and I, I think too, it is a lot of work, you know, to get a book published. I can only imagine. So, and I know guys are busy, but yeah, that may be one of the other things too, is our churches, independent Baptist churches tend to be a little smaller, I think probably. Yeah. And maybe you have a bivocational pastor or maybe you're the only pastor on staff and you're just very busy. So that's another yeah. part of the, of I mean, the challenge. Because they're smaller, that means there's a little less financial independence. So, you know, um, it's a lot more difficult to hire ghost writers and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's challenging. <laughs> yeah. And, and writing the checks to get yourself on the New York Times bestseller list, writing those big checks to, 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 to boost your, to buy your rating on the New York Times best. Yeah. It's really, yeah. Buying it right. Exactly. Buying your own books. <laughs> oh man. If you, I mean, hey, if technically this, he was a fundamentalist when he did that in my opinion, but yeah, I don't disagree with you. If you have no idea what we're talking about, just thank God. Yeah. Just, like don't, you're praying don't, tonight. Don't thank God. There. You don't know what Josh and I are talking about. <laughs> awesome. Hey, well, we've got something fun scheduled for tonight. Josh, we're going to do the Young Baptist Showdown. That's right. Part number two. Part two. You ready for this? Let's do it. Let's remind everybody of the rules of the game. Here's how it goes. Tonight, we have four particular topics, questions, talking points, whatever you want to call them. Um, Clay will take one side of the argument. I'll take the other side. He gets two minutes. I get two minutes. No more than two minutes cut it off and then we'll kind of discuss it for five in the in-between and we'll move on. Should be pretty, pretty cut and dried. Let's do this thing. Come on. So the first question we're addressing tonight is this question. Altar calls meaningful or manipulative. All right. All right. I'm going to be taking the position of meaningful. You okay. ready, Josh? Are you ready, Clay? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. So altar calls, do we find them in the Bible? That's my first question always. And the truth is not specifically called an altar call. <laughs> no, but what you do find in the Bible is a call to action over and over and over again. When men of God preach the word of God, they have a call to action. So if what you mean by altar call here is that you have to have a specific uh, type of song played on a specific instrument, you have to have uh, a time in your service uh, where you are, um, you know, pleading and, and taking a super long time. And maybe we, maybe we do extra verses on, on of, of a particular song. Cause we think maybe the Holy spirit's moving then no, I don't have, I don't have a good argument necessarily for that, but a call to action in every service can be very helpful. And a good use of church buildings is to have a place where you can welcome people, where you can invite people to pray, to repent, to do business with the Lord. And every good sermon has some call to action. It may not be look the same in every sermon. Um, and you know, it's possible that once in a while you have a sermon where you don't have really much of an opportunity for an altar call. There's not a huge call to action. It's more informative or or, um, or uh, just educational. But in the end, there is a meaningful 
way to have your congregation together and call them to action. And that call to action often takes the form of prayer, most often takes the form of prayer. So at the end of the service, to have a time where you say, hey, come to the altar and pray. And the truth is, even if you don't, an altar call can mean, hey, you make your seat an altar. You do business with the Lord. Having that time in a service, I believe, is meaningful. Anything else you'd like to say in the last 10 seconds? No, sir. Okay. So, Josh, you're taking the position that they're a manipulative. Hey, yep. Yeah. So I'm taking the position of manipulative. You ready? Let's do it. Go. Uh, so are altar calls manipulative? I'm 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 gonna say they are. And there's a couple reasons why. First of all, I think to some degree, because they're placed at the end of an already um emotionally sensitive moment, especially if like there's been a very solid message to preached. Um to then pivot into this salesman type pitch of like, get up from your seat, come to the front, you know, you know, come on, let, let me see your hands. Come on down. Yeah. That's, that's incredibly manipulative. They, and, and that being said, they're often accompanied with um, like extremely urgent or repetitive language. Um, you know, what are they? What is, I can't right now I'm blanking on some of the classic lines, but it's like, come on down right now. Let's go. So yep. don't stay in your seat. Come right now. I see, I see that hand. Yeah, let, is there one more that hand up? We, I got time for one more hand. I got time for one more hand. Um, you know, let's see it. Come on, come on down, come on down, you know, snapping the fingers, all of that. Uh, and sometimes they even use, you know, the classic like doomsday now or never kind of stuff. Like if you don't respond right now, you, you may get up out of here and be like those boys at last week's camp meeting that got in a car and died, you know? And, and what is it doing? It's stirring up fear. It's creating an emotional response, a primarily emotional response instead of a, a response to truth. And uh, because of that, I think that the altar calls are manipulative. Well, Josh, we just love giving 10 seconds back. Yeah, because we feel like Congress. Like I yield. I yield the rest of my time. All right, here we go. Five minutes on the clock. Go. I want to say, as far as what you said, as far as I'm being meaningful, I like how you brought to, uh, um, brought the point about of calling for a response. That's very important, and I really think that, um, good preaching does that every time. It requires action. It calls for a response. So I really, I, I think that was good. Yeah, there's a difference between teaching and preaching in that way. Like teaching can just be the imparting of biblical information, but 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 preaching, there's a proclamation involved. Mm -hmm. And so there there is something that's that's being asked. Like, hey, there's something urgent. There's something that needs to be done about the truth being presented. I the the interesting point you brought up that I think uh, landed most with me was. You focused on uh, on the emotional versus the spiritual. Mm -hmm. There's always the temptation to try to get people to respond because you want somebody to respond. There is that feeling like, uh, like, hey, I really, I really want people to get saved, or I really want people to get right with God. I really want people to uh, come forward and, and and discuss, you know, talk to God about things. And as of course, you know, 
it, it's both about the listener's emotions and about the speaker's emotions. Yeah. I, I feel when, when, when the emotion plays a big role. So that's the danger for sure. Uh, I just think, I, I think you can be so scared of that, that you can go into the other ditch and be like, I don't want to, I'm just going to leave it at that and, and not create a, uh, an opportunity for the Holy spirit. Like let, let the truth sit for a minute here. Mm-hmm. Let's pray together. And have a moment where somebody could respond or con- could come to the altar or could find somebody that's a leader in the church and ask questions. But you you said well that the, it, when the focus is on emotion, you do you start you start appealing to fear or you start appealing to uh, salesman tactics like you do. You were talking about the you know people. I've seen people snap a bunch of times like trying to create an urgency like oh they're going to miss the bus to heaven if they don't respond well, or yeah or, that's the vibe it gives off too. Like it really is like, Hey, the free, the coach is freaking leaving the station, get on or, or, mm-hmm. or burn in hell. And that's terrible. Yeah. That's terrible when that happens. And and you're right. If, if it's emotion driven, it's, it, it's, it's, it's manipulative. And you, you, uh, you too mentioned, um, well, you, you, you drew a contrast between the spiritual and the, and the emotional, like you can do, you can do a good altar call or a, let's call it an invitation or whatever without doing that. Um, but that is always the the danger is that you're just coaxing a response. And then of course, what's going to happen when they come to the altar is you're going to reward that response by saying, Oh, there were so many at the altar yeah. today. And it's going to guilt people into coming to the altar more next time. And then there's this assumption that, well, if nobody came to the altar, God didn't do anything or nobody got helped or, or stuff like that. So that's the, that's the danger. Go ahead. You're going to say something. Yeah. Um, I think, I think some of it is just really in some places, it's just an ego play. Like, I need to get people up and down the, down the aisles, you know, like you were just talking about. Yep. Um, and I think I want to be able to brag about how many people (laughs) exactly. And I think it's important as well, though. Like you were saying, I think it's a good time at the end of a service to slow it down, to allow for time of prayer and introspection and responding to the conviction of the Holy spirit. But I, I just think we have to be super careful that we aren't taking those times and turning them into um, how can I get to this person's emotion? They're already vulnerable because God is doing a deep work in their heart. And you know how it is when God's working in your heart spiritually, a lot of times we do respond emotionally. Like, yeah. I can't tell you how many times God's really convicted me and I've, I've you know, shed tears. We just have to make sure we're not seeing that and trying to push that emotional button even harder yeah. to try and get somebody up. Yeah. Cause if there's a, there's a huge difference between pleading with a sinner in a, an appropriate way to say, Hey, if God's work, if God's convicted your heart today, why wouldn't you respond to him? Why wouldn't you believe? Why wouldn't you repent of your sin? Why don't you commit to follow him? You know, there's, there's a way to do that and to, to speak that truth and to encourage people to respond without using like these tactics, these pressure tactics. And like you said, it's, it's, or I, I think we both said it now, but, but it, you said it's an ego thing. Like I, I, when you publicly reward the response now, next time people are like, you know, he made some good points. I'm going to go down so yeah. that he feels like there was a risk. The preacher feels like there was a response. I want him to be encouraged. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to the altar. That and happens I've done a that. lot. I've oh done yeah. That. Oh yeah. That's happened a lot where people like nobody moves. So somebody's like, Oh, I'm going to go. I don't want the pastor to feel like we didn't enjoy his message. It's like, that's, it's, uh, it's messed up. There we are. That's our time. Great thoughts. All right, Clay. Number two, topic number two, when it comes to 
church dress, what we wear to church, not your favorite Sunday dress, but like church dress, does it matter or does it not? I'll take the position that it matters, Josh. If uh, if there were if I were to come in my underwear, <laughs> I think you'd have a problem with it, Josh. So let's start with with that. Let's start with to say it doesn't matter is is a problem. So let's you know when I come to church, everywhere I go, I think about what I'm going to put on. Right, something crosses my mind about the kind of place or event I'm going to, mm-hmm. and so when I'm if I'm just going to go to Chick Fil A, you wear a tuxedo. Yeah, there's a yeah. I would always since I'm a preacher of the gospel, I'd always wear a tie and cufflinks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm joking, but but if I'm going to Chick Fil A, I'm just going to wear uh, a pair of shorts or uh, a t-shirt or or a pair of jeans. There's a huge, but there's a huge variety of what I might wear if I'm just going to go to the to the restaurant. When I go to work, I work at a bank. When I go to work, I don't wear those things. I wear a button up shirt. I wear a pair of slacks or a pair of khakis. Why? Because Regions Bank says, hey, what we're doing here matters. And we want to send the message to our customers that we're ready to be here. Like this is important to us. And so uh, I'm not here to tell you exactly what you should wear to church. But what I am here to tell you is that uh, it's important that we wear something it's important that we wear something that's not a distraction, right? It's important that we that we dress in a way that is um, conducive to the importance that we're placing on what we're doing there. And so, you know, I just think like, hey, you're thinking about what you put on no matter what, right? You're thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So are we trying to make a fashion statement or are we trying to dress appropriately that demonstrates what we're supposed to be doing uh, in a worshipful environment where Jesus is the focus? Anything else? No, that's it. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take the uh, the position that it doesn't matter. Let me start the timer. Okay. So, so, so I can wear underwear. <laughs> you sh- you probably should wear underwear. <laughs> uh. Anyways, uh, it doesn't really matter. One, I I don't believe what we wear increases or decreases the quality of our worship if it did somebody who maybe just had the worst night of their life and you know was out on the street and decided to walk into a church service and doesn't have fancy clothes on they're not going to be able to worship well if it really mattered uh and i think more significant than all of that is that uh a quote from the book misreading scripture with western eyes The author said, many of us wear our Sunday best to church because we claim we want to look our best for God, but God sees us all week. So is it really God for whom we want to look our best? If God truly knows our hearts, you know, who are we really dressing for on Sunday morning? I mean, who are we actually putting on this, this fancy, you know, $150 tie and our nice suit and fancy dress if it if god truly sees our hearts and knows the real us does it really matter if we dress up on a sunday morning and look like we're about to walk into court like harvey specter no i don't think it does (laughs) um i think what matters is the condition of our heart when we come to worship more 
than the quality of our clothing. So I seed my 15 seconds. <laughs> I yield the remainder of my time. All right, let's do this thing. Five minutes. Josh, I, this was a terrible topic because... Actually, yeah, and I right. loved your answer because your answer was actually like good and you didn't even like lean into it super hard at all. <laughs> and still I was struggling. First of all, I, I if we could just start here, I agree with everything you said, by the way. Everything you said was, was accurate. There's only one Bible reference about what we wear when we gather for an assembly that specifically addresses that. It's James chapter two, and it specifically says Talk not to have respect for people who wear nicer clothes. Yep. So like anybody who's out there wanting to pick apart what other people are wearing to church, read James chapter two, let's stick that in your pipe. I guess you don't really, <laughs> I guess you're probably not the type to smoke a pipe, at least not where anybody knows about it. But I'm just saying like, you, okay, this goes back to, I said a few things in in my whole piece, Josh, <laughs> that just run counter to what I, like I kept saying, when you go to church, when you go to church, when you go yeah. to church, we don't go to church. Mm. We are the church. And like yeah. you said, we're always the church, not just when we're, worshiping God on a Sunday morning. And, and I think the, the, the whole conversation about what you wear to church, it's okay. If you have a preference, like, Hey, I like when we gather, when people wear this, that's fine for you to think that, but you shouldn't pass judgment on people who don't. Yeah. And you shouldn't be analyzing anybody for what they're wearing or not wearing, as long as they're decent to be around other people in general. Like if it depends on what you think we're doing there, if, if that's, if, <laughs> You people like to use the thing, oh, if you were going to meet with the president. Well, if the president was my dad, I probably would wear a pair of jeans and it not be that big a deal. Right. Um, well, and it's like you said, appropriateness matters for the occasion. Yes. I think that that is important. Sure. And I, and I still agree with what I said where it's like, hey, you think about what you're putting on. Think about it in light of what, it, what is happening in the sanctuary. So I do agree with what I said on that. I wasn't just... Uh, what, everything I said wasn't blowing smoke, right? Because I do think we do think about it. You think about what you're going to put on before you go to uh, to a, a meeting of your church. So do think about that. But man, the I don't understand the I don't understand the focus on it that's out there. It's okay for you to feel a certain way and to like a certain thing, and you're free to express that as long as you're not doing it in a way that's demeaning other people. Like, oh, you're a, these people are weirdos, or hey, I don't get how you can just come come to church like that. You know, like. You can express your opinion yeah, as long I as it's I don't want to see your knobby knees. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Uh, do it. Express your opinion if you want, but do, <laughs> you're nuts. <laughs> do it in a way that's gracious. Like, hey, I prefer this, but I know other people, you know, don't. Uh, yeah. And like you said, you the, the the real danger is you create this sort of environment where where somebody walks in and they're being like sort of analyzed based on how they're dressed. And well, like, how many times have we heard about, stories of people who come into church? And the the hot button one is women wearing pants. Some woman walks into yep. church on a Sunday morning that's never been there and she gets turned away because she's wearing wearing pants. Like, are you joking with me? Yeah. And you know what's sad is what can even be worse than being turned away is being is is not being turned away, but being stared at like you're a weirdo the whole oh, time. Oh yeah. Like that's the worst. You just you're like you think people that person's ever coming back? They might even know what not even know what they did. But they're like, man, they treated me so awkwardly. And by the way, if you if you demean people who dress less than you for church, one thing I've learned about having children is you cannot stop them from responding to what they believe is true. Yeah. So if you're constantly demeaning people for X, Y, and Z over things, don't expect your children to know how to function with grace. They're honest. Mm -hmm. They're a lot more honest than we are oftentimes. So, well, and consider 
one of the big things that you hear from people when they come to church. Um, like we had a lady stop by the church on a Wednesday night during sound check. And one thing we tried to do is invite her to the service. And she was like, well, I, I just, I just don't, I don't think I, what I'm wearing is appropriate. She wasn't wearing anything inappropriate, but I'm afraid that we've built this culture around the gathering of the church that like, if you don't yeah. have the the nicest clothes in the world, don't come here. And that's yep. so, that's so messed up. Well, and you, we can even do it on the other extreme. Like I know there's, there's multiple forms of sort of legalistic mentality. Yeah, you can either right. be like, Hey, you, you know, you don't want to wear uh, nice enough clothes, then you're not ready for church. But then we can do the other thing where if somebody is wearing a tire, a suit, we're just like, Oh, what a, what a, that must be a fundy right there. Uh, we should lay off of that too. Like yeah. if they're just excited for church and they just like to dress up in suits and ties, cause it's the only time they get to wear them or, or they just have always done that. As long as they're not being judgmental, leave them alone too. Yeah. Like we've got Josh, you know, there's people in our church every single Sunday with suits and ties. There's people every single Sunday wearing a pair of jeans. There's somebody with a t-shirt just about every week. Like we're just, we're just not going to make what you wear to church a subject matter for other people's uh, fodder for conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. And if I could throw one more thing in there, I think a lot of this, the appropriateness of what you wear to church does depend upon the culture that you're in, but that's another conversation that I, t I definitely agree with that too. Cool. Well, the third topic for today, Josh, are you ready? So ready. It is this youth ministry. Is it a distraction or discipleship? Well, I'm going to take the, uh, I'll start the timer now. Uh, the discipleship position, youth ministry is discipleship uh, for several reasons. It's a more focused opportunity for kids to hear and understand the gospel and doctrine in a way that may click better with them and in their particular stage of life. Um, I mean, it's just true. Like teenagers, they comprehend things differently sometimes and having a different little different environment for them could be beneficial to help them either trust Christ or learn better how to follow Christ on a regular basis. Um, it also gives kids opportunities to push each other closer to Jesus to build accountability into their lives, especially as we're seeing uh, more and more youth groups pivot towards uh, like a sermon time and then a small group time after. So intentional reflection upon the sermons, intentional <laughs> times of, you know, genuine conversation with one another. Uh, that's important. Th those things are beneficial. And then I think it also, it, it can be used for, a, for, uh, as a means for kids to get involved in church ministry. And that was the case for, for my experience growing up was the youth group was kind of the, the entryway into helping out in children's church or Sunday school or whatever other ministry opportunities, you know, were available to us. And it gives kids something to be excited about the, at, at every single week. Hey, get, let's get them excited about being connected and committed to the local church which I think is important. Um, as long as the teaching, caveat, it's good discipleship. As long as the teaching is actually solid and doctrinal and isn't afraid to go below the surface and dive deep with the kids because they need that kind of teaching on a regular basis. So I, I believe it's uh, discipleship. 
All right, start the timer, Josh, because you are so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, let me start here. Deuteronomy chapter six teaches that the the, the responsibility for spiritual instruction is the family. And that means it is the parents' responsibility to be raising their children in the ways of the Lord. You see examples all throughout the Old Testament of God's people coming together, both the men, the women, and the children, both learning about God together, learning the scriptures, singing together. And I see this oftentimes in the in, in today where I see families worshiping together. And that's a beautiful thing when you have children participating, children worshiping. And I think there's a couple of things that goes wrong when you don't do that. First, you see this separate attitude toward the youth group being super fun because we do it different over there in that wing. And over here, it's the serious, more, you know, buttoned up church services. And so there's this gap that occurs with young adults. They come out of youth ministries and then they come into church regular worship service environments and they're bored because it was so much more exciting over there. So what was happening over there was intended to be discipleship ended up just taking away from their transition into adulthood. Um, Another thing that I think is, um, is problematic is being that the parents are supposed to be engaged in the spiritual formation of their kid. It can often be their way of relinquishing their duties and saying, Hey, I'm just going to trust the youth pastor. I'm just going to trust our teen pastor or whatever to spiritually, uh, disciple the children. And so it, it takes this pressure off the parents, whereas they should feel just as involved. They should feel more involved, uh, than, than some, you know, staff member at the church. And so those are some big reasons why I think also kids get into a lot of trouble in youth groups and a lot less of that would happen if the parents were more involved. So should there be youth activities? I think parents should probably be more involved in those things than they are. And youth ministry often takes away um, from, from all of that. All right, five minutes ready, go. So here's my takeaway. We basically just gave a formula for balanced youth ministry (laughs) (laughs) parents be involved student pastors teach the word and disciple yeah yeah i I, if just something that i can speak to i was totally being devil's advocate in several of those points but everything i said was on its own it was true I agree. Uh, Yeah, it it just wasn't actually a complete case against youth ministry. It was just sort of critiquing the problems I've seen in youth ministry more than it was a case against youth ministry, Um, which, by the way, is is something we see often. You'll see people be like, I don't like youth ministry because of X. It's like, well, you haven't really made a case against youth ministry. You've made a case against bad youth ministry. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, let's be honest, there's a lot of bad youth ministry going on. Oh, yeah. There's been this huge push in the last few gener in the last generation or two to, to make the kids excited about church. And it's not done anything to, to stop kids leaving the church. What stops kids from le- leaving the church is discipling them, making the, them disciples and that not changing when they turn 18. Yep. Like you said, deep discipleship, give them the word, stop acting like these kids are stupid. And that if you start, if you actually teach them the doctrines of the, of the word of God, that that's going to, that's going to be too deep for them. Don't treat Mm -hmm. them like that. They're not, they're not idiots. So I do agree with you too, that there's, there's environments where it's really great to have 
the word taught at different age levels where kids can digest it better. I mean, I know in our church, I want my kids, you know, this I've, I've kept my kids in our services for the full services at times, just because I want them to sit with us. Yeah. Now we already do a format where the kids are there for the worship time, like the wor- the music and the singing, and then they leave right before the preaching. Um, I like that format because it gives us time for the kids to be with their parents, uh, singing, watching their parents engage in the service. So in a way they're being discipled by their parents too. They're sitting with their parents in church or at, at church services, all of that. But there is just truth of the fact that my kids know Bible stories today that they wouldn't know if they were always in, in the services with me. Mm-hmm. There's, there's things, there's, there's a lot that goes in through our youth ministry that puts it in a format that's so easy, so much easier for them to digest. Um, that I love that we have a, a, a good youth ministry at our church. So there's a little bit of balance there, you know, like don't, and I, there's a danger even at our church, Josh, of people dumping their kids off into the youth ministry and expecting that to account for their spiritual formation. Yeah. That happens even in ours, at our church. Parents don't do that. Like yeah. they, it is supposed to be a supplement, just like I could never call myself a serious Christian if the only spiritual interaction I was doing was on Sundays. Like that's not a serious Christian. I should be reading my Bible daily. I should be praying daily. Your kids are the same way. Yeah. You can't, you can't combat five days of, of, of being out in the world and going to school with an hour on Sunday mm-hmm. or an hour or, or another, another hour on Wednesday night. So those are my thoughts. And to your point, I think truthfully, a kid could come up and be in a lousy youth ministry. But if mom and dad are involved, along Uh, the way i'm not saying it's a fail safe okay i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go that far but i think the this attrition rate that we see with kids coming up in youth groups and then just boom they're just out of the church i think that would shrink immensely if mom and dad were constantly discipling their kids at home as well yeah we josh we ask our kids on the car ride home from church from our church services almost every week hey what did you learn what yeah what did uh, they talk about in Sunday school? What did so-and-so teach you in, in junior church? Like, what, what are you guys talking about? I want to know what they're learning and, try, and trying to engage them and, and hold them accountable for it. Like, hey, what, did, what, what happened there? It's not, it's my responsibility what they're, what they're experiencing there. I know the church is supposed to be doing a good job, but it's, they're my kids, right? Yeah. And you, you, you made the point about it's just be parents make it to where it's the youth pastor. Like he is now, the the spiritual guru for these kids lives and he's the one who is supposed to guide them into all manner of godliness you don't even uh, well i hope not i hope you don't even treat your own pastor that way like yep. why would you expect the youth pastor to do that with your kids yeah he's i i see isn't it a lot like we our kids go to a christian school isn't it a lot like them hey i can't i can't teach my kids all the academics i'm not trained to do that so, but, but the school is not a replacement for me. They're on my team. They're a ministry to my family. The church ministry should be the same way. Like the youth ministry should be a supplement to what I'm trying to do in my kids' lives. Pastor so-and-so is on our team. Yeah. Thank God for him. But like we're, we're driving the bus and he's just, he's just coming in on Sunday and trying to make biblical truths specifically applicable to teenage life or, or to, or to middle school life or whatever it is. Yep. All right, Clay, last one. Let's hear it. Here it is. Number four. When it comes to ministry leaders, pastors, ministry leaders, however you want to say it, and 
being friends with church members, is it a blessing or is it a curse? Well, Josh, I'm going to take the position of curse here for a couple of reasons. First, there is always a danger um, when you're in ministry and when you have an elevated level of transparency. And that is what leadership in ministry just gets you. Mm-hmm. And that is not a bad thing. That is the way it's supposed to be. First uh, Peter 5 talks about the fact that you are uh, an example to the flock. And so that being the case, there's an elevated level of transparency. And you just, one thing you're going to learn if you've been in ministry for any length of time is there is a lot of pain that goes with ministry. And a lot of that pain comes from people that you would think at some points in your ministry, they were your best friends. Um, They would come off like that. They're always going to be there for you. And so that level of transparency can burn you more often than not. And, And you have to be, you know, especially careful with um, with friend, it's not, I'm not saying you can't be friends to them. You just have to guard that friendship in a way that you wouldn't, that no one else really has to think about. And so in that way, you often feel like even your closest friendships are more pastor church member than they are just equal friend. You often will feel that way because they, whatever their job is, let's say they're a, a, a well, I'm a bivocational, so I'm a banker 40 hours a week or just over right? 40 hours a week, I'm banker. On Saturday, if I'm off work, I'm not banker. I'm just clay. Your senior pastor doesn't get to do that. Mm -hmm. He's always pastor. He carries that with him everywhere. And so there's no real way that he can stop being pastor. And the moment he does, the moment he's just friend and just is just himself, those things can be used against him in the future because there's a level of transparency there that could just come back to haunt you. Uh, things that can be weaponized and used against you. Well, I'm going to take the start timer. I'm going to take the blessing perspective. Being friends with church members, it's a blessing. Um, For one reason, because as a a pastor or ministry leader, uh, just a reminder that you're a normal human being and you need friends. And you don't need just friends that you can talk talk shop with the whole time. You need people in your life that you can just be real with, to be transparent with, to to have those conversations, to to just sit down and enjoy the God's good gifts in our life together. I, mm. I really believe that. And then also, I think it's a, an, another blessing is, um people get to understand that you are just another normal person, which is a a complete misunderstanding. A lot of times when it comes to ministry leaders that the pastor, the ministry leader is a superhuman. They are, they are far and away better than all other human people, but you're just a normal person and you, you need those relationships with one another and it having friends in your church it helps you grow closer together. It makes when you're ministering together, even that much more wonderful, that much sweeter. It it gives you even deeper opportunities to pray and commit to help each other in, in practical areas of your life. And it lets people see that, yeah, you may not ever get to take the, the name pastor off of your, off of your shirt or whatever you want to say, 
but you go through some of the same stuff they do. You're still struggling. You're still walking through your sanctification and you just need somebody there every once in a while to be a help and an encouragement to as well. So I think, I think it can be a blessing. All right. You ready for this, Josh? Five minutes. Go. Uh, this, I just realized you, this, this episode did me dirty. You had me arguing for altar calls. Bro, we sat in my office and decided this. You could have backed out. (laughs) I know we did, but I'm just realizing how terribly I chose. I had to argue that what you wore to church matters, that youth ministry was a distraction, and that friends with church members and ministry leaders is a curse. (laughs) Hey, I mean... (laughs) Okay, I hope nobody shut us off while I was talking, because if I was listening to that, I'd have been like, I'm turning this junk off. Well, but Clay, that's a common thought process is... If you're in the ministry, don't become friends with people in your church. I, I know. And Josh, to be honest with you, I've thought it and I've, I've believed it at times in my life, but I, I'm convinced that everything you said was true and just about everything. Not what I said was not necessarily false, but that stuff happens to lay people too. You develop friendships and then you get to, you get close to people and they use things against you. It's just that in that church environment, it feels a little bit more like a fishbowl. So it's a little, it hurts a little bit more. Um, when they do it, because you're like, Hey, you, but it goes back to what you said. You were talking about how pastors are just normal people. The reason why pastors get shielded is because it's not always the pastor's fault. Sometimes it is, but it can be the church's fault too. Mm -hmm. Um, churches can be like these idea where the, the, the pastor has to be just like this. And his wife has to be just like this. And his kids have to be just like this to the point where the pastor starts feeling the need. It's like, I gotta, I gotta protect my family from this. And so he starts, he starts walling off church members because they're going to, they're going to hold him to a standard. They would never hold themselves. Why not? Why, why would you hold him to a standard? You'd never hold yourself. I get that there's biblical qualifications for pastors, but he's not allowed to have a bad moment. You know, if you have a really good friend and they vent to you and they say, Josh, you probably had this, somebody vents to you and you're like, he didn't even really mean it all. He's just mad. You know, he's just blowing steam because this thing, the situation really frustrated him. Your pastor's not allowed to be a human being and have that too. Like there's a real fear with ministry leaders oftentimes that if they let people in behind that wall and they're just themselves and they're just, they just need a friend that that could come back to bite them, you know? And so starts with, I think both pastors seeing themselves differently and the church seeing them differently. Like, Hey, yes, there are spiritual, there's spiritual leaders in our lives, but they're not, but they're still a person. I, I joke with our senior pastor as part of the staff, I joke with him that I'm, I'm good friends with them in spite of the fact that he's the pastor. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that negatively, it sounds negative, but what I really mean is I want him to forget that he's the pastor of the church when we're hanging out. I just want him to be Tyler and I want her to be Teal and I want them to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And I want them to feel comfortable that I would never use anything that they're, you know, any weakness they have or any, whatever, if I am exposed to it, just being close to them, I don't want them to ever fear that I'm going to use that against them. But we have to mean that and we have to allow them to be human beings. Um, and like you pointed out really well, you said that closeness actually creates more opportunities for help us to help each other grow. Yeah. You know how many pastors feel lonely, like awfully, awfully lonely mm. because they think they can only be friends with other senior pastors who will let them be normal, you know? And so, uh, yeah, you should have friends in your church and your friends should be your friends, not be, um, 
because one of the things I see a lot is people think they have friends in the church and really there's people just cozying up to the pastor because it's the pastor's family. It's like, yeah. it's like access to power or something like that. If I yeah. can influence the pastor, uh, that stuff ticks me off. But well, that's what I was about to say was, uh, I think the, a lot of the reason it's so, it, it can be somewhat of political. a political because of the politics. <laughs> yes. In, in, in the idea of like, well, if I'm friends with the pastor, there's a power dynamic or if I'm friends with the pastor and he's real around me, then I get privileged information. And if I need to, I can use that when I want to. Um, I will say, I don't know of how many, how many other occupations there are where if you become friends with somebody, it affects you both personally and in like the, in your, in your public sphere, as far as your job as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that you're right because a lot of other professions actually um, discourage fraternization. Like be careful about the relationship between the manager and the employee because you don't want it to be like buddy, buddy. And then you come to work and make a decision and it's like, Hey, I thought we were friends. Like, you know, you, they discourage that kind of fraternization yeah. Well, you get in the church and it's almost like, it's like what it's supposed to be. You're, you're supposed to be close to one another. And yet he's the pastor of your church. Like mm -hmm. you've got to really, you've got to hold him in high regard for the job that he does, but also allow him to be a human being. Like you're saying, you, you know, there's, if, if we're going to actually, if we're going to actually, um, this is the last question we can go for another minute, right? Yeah. We uh, can. If, if you're actually going to believe this and live this out, then, then you've got to, you've got to believe it and live it out. You can't, um, you know, you were just saying you can't, you can't sit there and act like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to hold this person accountable for things that I found out or, 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 or I'm going to hold this person to task. I'm going to just reveal things that they were just being a normal human being. And I'm going to use it to punish them. Cause the other thing, Josh is if I have a friend and a relationship is struggling, me and that friend's relationship is struggling. It's just between me and them. Generally speaking, I'm a really terrible person. If I go and I babble out to other people but right. for some reason, when it's a pastor of a church, it's like, Oh, I just think, I just think people should know what he said. And I just think people like that people think it's somehow appropriate than to poison relationships mm. and to broadcast things. It's like, Hey, if you got a problem with somebody, just deal it between you and them. It's nobody else's issue. And if they had a weak moment, just deal, go talk to them about it and, and, um, and leave it there. But, and it's not like we're over here advocating for like, if you're friends with your pastor and your pastor confides in you and tells you that he's in some sort of ridiculous sin to just be like, meh, you know, we're not no, saying not. that. But we wouldn't do that for another church member either, right? We'd call that person to repentance. And that's what you'd have to right. do in this situation is you'd hold them accountable. But we're, I guess we're, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, if I, if I had a relationship sour with one person, I'm not worried about affecting all of my other friendships. Mm hmm but in a church setting where maybe a good percentage of the pastor's friends are in that church, you know, it, it can be ridiculous. You know, it can be terrible because then one friendship breaks down and it feels like it's this spreading thing that affects all kinds of other people that he has relationships with. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough dynamic. It can be a tough dynamic, but yeah. we ought to approach it with grace and give ministry leaders the ability to have friendships that are not just other ministry leaders, but people in the church. For sure. Well, Clay, I guess we've solved all the problems again. Uh, <laughs> we should have talked about them. <laughs> uh, wow. But, uh, man, this is fun. I always enjoy doing the, this episode. This was a lot of fun the first time we did it. It's neat to yeah. explore different perspectives like that. Yep. 
Yep, no doubt about it. And I hope you guys learned something from it. If you think we missed a point, you think there's something you could add, let us know. Get on the socials at Young Baptist Pod. Let us know what you think on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever you uh, wherever you interact with our socials. And if you have any any other ideas, shoot them our way. We'd love to hear them. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Clay will get back to our our doctrinal series, or we'll at least figure out what we're doing. It's just. <laughs> Guys, we got to be honest with you. It's just been a busy season for us here. Lots been going on. Uh, yeah. So that's our excuse for right now. You know, maybe yeah, Josh, when the next one comes out, we'll have a different one. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say when we're we're going to do a couple of things concurrently. We've talked about this. We're gonna we're gonna talk about multiple things. We we've wanted to do a gospel centered series. Yes. Uh, where we talk about different avenue aspects of our life through the lens of the gospel. Uh, well, how does believing the gospel in our everyday life affect ministry? How does it affect church life? How does it affect our families, marriages, parenting, uh, friendship relationships, outreach and community interaction work? Like we want to talk about all that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's going to be a really, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be awesome, but we're going to keep dipping back into the doctrinal series too and continue, but that'll give us a little variety, right, Josh? That's the plan. Split, that's the mix plan. things up a little bit. Keep it mixed up. Keep it fun keep you guys uh on your toes um so well, josh what play? do you think man i don't i don't think much dude there it is <laughs> there it is thank you for listening to today's episode if you enjoyed the show we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic also be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and review wherever you consume the content you can follow us on instagram twitter and facebook at young baptist pod check out our website theyoungbaptistpodcast.com for more resource recommendations, our merch store, and to join our YBP community.